podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of the 59th Minute FPL Podcast, which is brought to you by Fantasy Football Scouts. I'm Mark McGettigan, you'll find me on Twitter at FPL General. I hope you're enjoying the break as much as I am. It was certainly a long, draining season with a World Cup break and every team looking the same for the most part due to all the double game weeks. I'm enjoying the stress-free weekends, but I'm also really looking forward to the new campaign because it feels like it could be the first normal season with no fixture disruption since before the pandemic. It's crazy to think that the 2018-19 season was the last full season without disruption. That's a very long time in the fantasy world. Here's hoping for a smooth season ahead, which will make for a much better FPL game. On today's episode, I'm going to review my season and share some of my thoughts for next season. There's no real structure to the pod. Just going to talk you through the notes I've made over the last few days and answer some questions from Twitter. There'll be plenty of pre-season podcasts as soon as the game goes live with the new player prices. So make sure you hit subscribe for those. The Premier League fixtures will be announced next Thursday, the 15th of June. So keep an eye out for those. That's always kind of the first date in the calendar that kind of whets the appetite for the new season. There's two great websites that I've used this week to analyse the season. FPLOptimize.com and also FPL Statistical, which can be found at anewplat.net. So it's A-N-E-W. PLA.net. Two great resources to look back on your season and see what you can bring into the next one. The very basic timeline of my 2022-23 season, it didn't start well. I was ranked 2.5 million after game week four, so I was up against it from day one after some poor choices in the opening game week, which I'll touch on. By the time we got to the World Cup, I was ranked just outside the top 1 million. So, you know, almost at the halfway stage, outside the top 1 million, not where you want it to be. And it was a long six-week break, you know, just itching to get back into it and start improving on that rank. Then the second half of the season went really, really well, and I finished on 15K. Overall, that was 11 points off a top 10k finish, so just 11 points behind it, which I couldn't even have dreamed of when you think back to December-January time. And when I compare myself to the world number one, which is what we're all trying to do when we play this game, I was 181 points behind the winner of FPL. And later in the podcast, I will do some comparison to my team, to the world number one in terms of captaincy and chips and all that kind of stuff as well. Because when I was looking at it, there wasn't a huge amount of difference between us, which again just shows you that it's very fine margins in FPL. I think he captained Wilson, for example, towards the end of the season for, was it 48 points when I went for Isak? So all those little things, if you can be on the right side of three or four of them over the course of the season, it could make a massive difference to your team. So going back to the starts... Starting with goalkeepers, I think that was an issue in the early weeks of the season because I started with the Ward-Everson 8 million combo. We've never had an 8 million combo goalkeeper, you know, one that starts and one on the bench in FPL. And I I remember a lot of us kind of went there very late in the day. We probably weren't looking at it until two or three days before the season started. I was certainly looking at it maybe a 4.5 and a four, but then Everson emerged, and a lot of us went for both of them, and it didn't start well, because Ward scored one point in each of the first three game weeks, but to be fair, 
I kind of recognised that early and I jumped off. I went to Ederson, game week four. But the problem there was he scored one point, six points and two points. So he didn't do great either. And then it was an early wild card for me. And I'll tell the grandkids in the future, when my grandkids in 50 years time are playing FPL, I'll tell them about the time that I wildcarded and then the Queen died. So I couldn't actually use those players that weekend because all the games got cancelled. So I had to actually build a wildcard for the following week than when I intended. So wildcard of game week seven, all the games got cancelled. So it then became a game week eight wildcard. And that's when obviously the fixture disruption started for the season. So goalkeepers first six game weeks did not go well. I then went for Nick Pope on that game week eight wildcard. That also didn't start well. He got two pointers in his first three matches. So overall, in the first quarter of the season, I got one clean sheet from the goalkeeper position in nine game weeks. So straight away, you're probably you're probably 30, 40 points behind some managers who have a better goalkeeper. But thankfully, for the rest of the season, it was better. Pope turned the corner and he did well from game week 10 to 17. Then on the limited transfers, I switched to Kepa, who was very cheap at Chelsea. And then I later moved for David Raya as well. Both of those keepers performed really well. And over the course of the season, my goalkeeper position actually returned quite a few points, despite not starting very well. I think the takeaway for me here is, quite simply, pick a better goalkeeper to start the season next year. Um... I still think going for the Ward-Everson combo was it was a viable strategy because obviously it freed up 0.5 million to use elsewhere in the squad. But when you've got you know pretty rubbish goalkeepers from a pretty rubbish defence, obviously Leicester fell off massively, ended up getting relegated. We probably, not many of us would have tipped Leicester for relegation at the start of the season. But again, probably a good thing there that I did recognise it early. I did move away from them in game week four, but certainly going to, be careful with my goalkeeper picks next season. There was a question from FPL Contrarian. How should we approach the goalkeeper situation next season? If the price, even if the price of the premium goalkeeper stays low, for example, Allison and Ederson, should we go for a premium or should we go for a rotating cheap goalkeeper? So been playing this game for a long time now. I've, I think I've had my best successes when I've had a 4.5 goalkeeper who I just play every week. I pick... A set and forget, someone like Araya this season, if you played him every week, you did really well. I don't like having a decision to make on goalkeepers, so I usually don't go for two 4.5s. For example, there was a stage of this season where I had Kepa and Raya, and you, some weeks you don't know which one to play, and you often play the wrong one. FPL is a very frustrating game, so I try and take as many decisions out of the game as possible, and one of those is the goalkeeper. I pick one. I play, in every, play them in every game, even in, in the big fixtures, because that's often where they get their saves and their bonus. And even this season, I had Raya in the last week of the season. I didn't play him against Man City, didn't expect a clean sheet, played Everson, which was a mistake, obviously. So I missed out on four points there because Raya got the clean sheet. So next season, I'm almost certainly going to start with a 4.5 goalkeeper who I play every week with a 4 million dud on the bench and hopefully just pick the right one. And it's a case of, I don't really like using transfers on a goalkeeper, so it's if we still have two wildcards next season, it's basically pick a goalkeeper game week one, change him on the wildcard if he needs to be changed, and likewise change that one on the second wildcard as well. Unless it's a lesser situation, and it's getting one point every week, then of course I will make a switch. But hopefully, basically three goalkeeper choices next season on game week one and on the two wildcards, and obviously on the free hit week as well. 
Another issue I had in the first part of the season was triple Liverpool, which certainly didn't go to plan. If you remember back to the to the first game week, a lot of us were debating, we were going to go Salah, we were going to go Trent, but the big debate was Robertson versus Luis Diaz. I ended up going for double Liverpool defence with Trent and Robbo. Salah was fine for the first five game weeks, but the defenders absolutely killed me. So I kept Trent and Robbo all the way up to the game week eight wildcard. And before that, so for those seven or eight game weeks, the only time Trent and Robertson got points was in the 9-0 win against Bournemouth. And over the same period, or at least over the first four game weeks, Luis Diaz scored three goals in the first four matches. So straight away on the Robertson versus Luis Diaz decision, I was well down on points. I bombed all three outs on the wildcard. And then didn't go back to them for a couple of game weeks later. So triple Liverpool, in particular double Liverpool defence to start of the season, was a slow starter to say the least. Another issue, Mason Mount was in my game week one team. He blanked the first three game weeks before he was sold. Looking a little bit further ahead, when I did play that wild card in game week eight, I blocked myself out of a move for a Newcastle attacker by going triple Newcastle defence, which proved costly because I couldn't get to Miggy Almiron when he was absolutely on fire. So I went with Pope, Trippier and Botman and I had that triple defence from game week 8 to game week 17 and that was the period where Almiron got almost all of his points for the season. So again, my takeaway here is I need to be more careful with triple ups in particular if you're tripling up on you know, a defence you need to really be sure that you're not going to want one of their midfielders or their forwards. Or maybe I need to be more open to maybe taking a minus four, you know, getting rid of a Botman to get an Almiron if he's scoring almost every week. I remember at the time thinking to myself, can I survive? Now, you've got to remember, this was before Almiron started scoring. But it was more I was thinking about Callum Wilson at the time. Can I survive without Wilson? And I remember thinking, yes, because there's plenty of other strikers out there. But again, it couldn't be the case of... That could have been the time Wilson went on his run that he did towards the end of the season and I would have been blocked out of him as well. So again, just a note for myself for next season, be very, very careful when tripling up on a team because you are blocking yourself out of potential very good assets. Even if they're currently not firing, that can change very quickly and you want to be able to get there. Almiron, painful reading when I didn't have him. Seven goals, two assists in those eight game weeks. That is a lot of FPL points. When I brought him in on the wild card, unlimited transfers, game week 17, it was too late, the damage was done. He did score straight away game week 17, but as we know, he didn't do much after that. So that was one of my regrets of the season, not being able to get to Almiron or not doing more to get there. Moving a little bit further ahead now to that restart after the World Cup, my approach was very much keep it simple. I didn't try and go chasing. So my Game Week 17 team didn't have any surprises. On paper, it was Kepa, Trippier, Cancelo and Rhys James. Cancelo obviously left soon after that and Rhys James was basically injured most of the season. The midfield on the restart was Salah, Saka, Martinelli, Rashford, Almiron, who finally came in, and up front, Darwin and Haaland. Now, I remember, you know, we had a lot of time to tinker with that Game Week 17 restart squad and probably one of my biggest regrets of the season was I basically picked my restart team. I posted it on the Patreon page. My team reveal was there. I was ready. I was done. I wasn't logging in again. I remember lying in bed that Friday night. Um, 
and thinking, right, I'm going to make a slight tweak here. I couldn't get to sleep. So what I did was I took out Rhys James. No, I took out Botman and I took out Harry Kane. They were initially in it. I took out Botman and Kane and I put in Rhys James and Darwin and that was absolutely disastrous because Rhys James and Darwin did nothing. Botman kept five clean sheets in a row right after that and Harry Kane obviously was very consistent all season. So if I hadn't made those last minute tweaks in on the Game Week 17 unlimited transfer squad, probably would have got a top 10k, which, which is frustrating. And again, it was a pivotal point in my season. Um, you know, Darwin and Rhys James did absolutely nothing. But moving on from that, things did start to improve then. I think the main thing for me in the second half of the season was I nailed a lot of the transfers. A lot of the transfers that I brought in did really well straight away. For example, Luke Shaw came in game week 19, got a goal straight away against Bournemouth for a 15-pointer. Bruno Fernandes came in game week 22, scored immediately against Palace and then got a 12-pointer soon after against Leicester. Odegaard was transferred in, gave me 23, delivered the points quite consistently before he was sold and gave me 29. Again, a slight regret selling Odegaard because I remember thinking to myself, this is Odegaard's season. He's absolutely on it. And again, ended up selling him. I think it was for Bruno Fernandes at one point, but missed out on three double-digit hauls from the Norwegian. So again, a lesson there is I've always been very patient with players, especially if they're delivering well. There's no real reason to sell them. So there was some slight regret there by losing Odegaard. Estupinen, March, and Matoma on the Gimme 26 wildcard played a big part in the revival. David Raya from Brentford was also a hero in the final part of the season. Got on Ollie Watkins at a good time, Gimme 28, just before he scored five goals in four matches. Trent and Salah came in in Gimme 34. They also did the business. Brought in Alvarez from City, Gimme 37. Got his goal against Chelsea. And the final transfer of the season, Haaland to Kane, captain, Game week 38 was a very nice way to finish the season. So did very well making transfers in the second half of the season, which I think was probably the key to all of those green arrows. There's a really nice feature on the FPL Optimized website where basically it shows you which players had the biggest impacts on your season, you know, positive and negative. So I thought this was interesting. The players, for me, who had the biggest positive impact, who contributed to my run of Green Arrows, Saka came out on top. Saka was an absolute hero for me because it was kind of a funny one with Saka. He had a very good season, but his ownership never got extremely high because a lot of people had you know, an Arsenal defender or maybe different Arsenal attackers. You had Odegaard, Martinelli. You had Jesus at times. Then people were on you know, Ben White, Gabriel and Saliba when he was fit as well. So Saka was an absolute hero and played a huge role in the survival. The other players who had the biggest positive impact, Erling Haaland, because I captained him very often. Matoma was very high on the list, got him quite early, and he did very well. I know he tailed off a bit towards the end, but I had him at the right times as well. David Raya, Botman, Estupin and, and Ivan Tony again Ivan Tony wasn't in too many teams but when I had him he tended to perform well I think I got a 26 point captaincy out of Ivan Tony at one point on the flip side the players who had the biggest negative impact so these players hurt my rank very very often number one McAllister who has joined Liverpool I was on March Matoma and Estupin so I could never get to McAllister and he kept getting those fortunate goals that went in off all parts of his body and he was getting the penalties. 
Again, he was a good pick, but I just kind of made my bed with March and Matoma. So McAllister hurt me quite a bit. Callum Wilson was painful towards the end of the season. Plenty of people didn't have him. If you're like me and you're on Isaac instead, that was very, very hurtful for the rank. Riyad Mahrez popped up here. Again, never really would have seen him as a threat because didn't really see him in too many teams around me, but he was obviously delivering points consistently and he was eating into my rank as well. Other players who hurt me were Salah, probably at those times that I didn't have him. And also Luis Diaz popped up here in the top five. That goes back to the start of the season, as previously mentioned. That's a cool, cool feature to have a look at. Which players were your players of the season and which players were your nemesis? So definitely, if I was putting a poster on my bedroom wall this summer, it probably would be Bukayo Saka to thank you for all of his points. Next section of notes I'm looking at is captaincy points. So again, had a look at FPL statistical for this. My total captain points for the season were 698, which is a healthy number. It was 26.9% of my total overall score. I remember previous seasons, seasons having less than 20% on this figure. So my captains did well. You know, thanks in large part to having an auto captain Haaland for most of the season. Compared myself to the world number one, I got 698 captain points. Ali got 758. So 60 more points from the captains. And again, a lot of that is Callum Wilson towards the end of the season. In terms of captaincy blanks over the season, I only had seven blanks out of 38 game weeks, which is a pretty good return. Again, Haaland makes that a lot easier these days. In terms of the players I captained, Haaland got the armband 24 times and he averaged 18.5 points. Salah was next with six captaincies, averaging 13.3. Kane only got the armband twice. Maybe that should have been more often. He averaged 22 points for me when he was captain. And then there was seven players who I captained on just one occasion. And most of these did well. Rashford got me 40. Saka 30. Matoma 28 in a double game week, Tony 26, I think that was a double game week as well, Isak with 14 and Mitrovic got 10. So very few captaincy blanks over the season. The blanks were actually probably Haaland and Salah for the most part whenever they didn't deliver. In terms of next season, captaincy for me, it's I really don't put too much thought into captaincy. It's probably a five minute decision for me on a Friday night or a Saturday morning. I usually go with my first gut instinct. I might look at a few different websites to see what they're saying and stuff like that. But for me, you know, if Haaland's got anyway a decent fixture and he looks like he's going to play, I think for the foreseeable future, we're all going to be captaining the Man City man, which makes me hope that they might tweak the captaincy in some way next season to make it a bit more interesting. Maybe some points for vice captains or something like that. Or maybe we're not allowed to captain Haaland more than 10 times something along those lines so unlikely to happen but we can hope in terms of auto subs always think this is quite interesting i think i remember last season i did pretty badly on auto subs this season i did better on nine occasions a sub came off my bench into my starting 11 and i got a total of 45 points which is pretty decent world number one ali he got 10 auto subs for a total of 57. So not a huge difference there. I got pretty lucky with auto subs towards the end of the season. But again, if you've got a good bench, you put yourself in a position to get lucky. Give me 32. I benched Isak. 
but he came in with 13 points because Madison didn't turn up for Leicester. Game week 36, I benched Estupinen, who had a double game week, because I didn't want to bench Trent, who had a single game week, because Trent was just playing so well in this new role, Liverpool performing well. Got lucky, Rashford didn't turn up for Manchester United, and I got Estupinen's 17-pointer off the bench. And then, on one occasion... I got Andreas Pereira for a six-pointer. I think back to the start of the season, a lot of people got Andreas Pereira points off the bench. Like I said, I think I only got him once for a six-pointer. So I missed out on the few occasions when he did get 10 points or more. In terms of hits over the course of the season, I took a total of minus 36 over the course of the season. Breaking that down, it was four on four occasions. I took a minus four. On one occasion, I took a minus eight. On one occasion, I went absolutely crazy and took a minus 12, which I don't even know if I've done in the past, maybe once before. But certainly, I get dizzy and get a nosebleed if I take anything more than a minus eight. The, I had a look in more detail at those hits to see exactly what they were, to see if there's anything to learn from that. Quite often when I take a, a minus four, Quite often it's for three transfers rather than just two. So I roll a transfer and then take a minus four the week after. Game week four, the minus four was for three moves. Getting rid of Everson, Nico Williams and Mason Mount. So getting rid of the guys who weren't delivering. Brought in Ederson, Saliba and Rodrigo. The Rodrigo transfer in didn't go very well. Before that he'd scored four goals in three matches. But then he blanked and he picked up an injury. So he didn't stay in the team very long. Give me 12 minus 4. Man City had a blank and Madison was suspended. So I sold De Bruyne and Madison, both who were going to get zero points for Salah and Trossard. Give me 34. I also took a minus 4 for three transfers. It was Rico Henry, Saka and Harry Kane out for Trent, Salah and Greenwood from Leeds. So it was a Liverpool double game week and they had good fixtures. So it was a minus 4 basically to get Trent and Salah. Sold Saka, which was fine, but also sold Kane, which didn't go very well. And the final minus four of the season was on the f- with five minutes to go on Game Week 38. Matoma, the news came through that Matoma was benched, so I took a punt on Madison. Leicester had something to play for on the final day. If they were going to survive, Madison was going to play a part. So I took a minus four Matoma to Madison, which didn't work out, but I was quite happy to take a gamble because... I knew I probably wasn't going to get to 10k regardless, so I could take a, a minus four gamble. The minus eight was in give me 20. Again, that was three transfers, so one free and basically two minus fours together. Cancelo, Salah and Mitrovic went for Botman, De Bruyne and Kane. And again, it was a double game week for Man City and Tottenham, so that's why I took the hits for De Bruyne and Kane. Cancelo was also gone at that point, so that's why he left. And the minus 12, you'll probably remember, give me 25, double game week four. I think it was Liverpool and Everton. And I wildcarded the week after, which doesn't make much sense really. But I wasn't really planning on wildcarding in 26. I think I was planning on wildcarding in 27. And then the plans changed. So there was five transfers made for a minus 12 in game week 25, which was all the double game, week, double game weekers came in. Trent, Salah and Darwin, as well as Tarkowski and McNeil. The Everton guys blanked. And then it was, the, you'll remember... Liverpool guys didn't do much in Game Week 25. Then a lot of us wildcarded them out in Game Week 26. And in Game Week 26, they beat Manchester United 7-0. Salah and Darwin absolutely destroyed United. Got loads of FPL points. Had them the week before, but didn't have them against Manchester United. 
in terms of points hits for next season, again, I don't really go into a season with a target of how many I'm going to take and stuff like that. I kind of take it on a game week by game week basis. If I need a minus four, if I need a minus eight, if I think it drastically improves the squad in the short term to medium term, I will absolutely do it. And I'm very open, you know, I'm more open to taking hits now than I was maybe a few years ago. But I always do like the approach of, you know, once I pick my game week one team, if you fix the weakest link as often as possible, you shouldn't really need to take too many hits. If you manage your squad efficiently, you should be able to avoid taking those points away. Because we know how hard it is to get points in FPL. I always think when I take a minus four, that's taken away one of the goals that my strikers have scored recently. So I like to think of it that way, which helps me to avoid taking too many. When I take hits, really, it's a lot of the time it's focused around blank game weeks and double game weeks. So I'm selling a player who's going to get zero. And I'm bringing in players who've got two fixtures. Moving on to chips and wildcards. My chips and my wildcards went well this season. The wildcards, first of all, I got a good initial bounce of both of them. Game, game week 8 wildcard, I was ranked 2 million when I played it. Two weeks later, game week 10, I was ranked 1 million. So I managed to half my rank very quickly. The game week 26 wildcard, I was ranked 200k. And two game weeks later... In game week 28, I was ranked 125k. So both wild cards were effective. Triple captaincy on Haaland game week 20 got 24 points. Not spectacular, but at least it wasn't a blank. We've all been there. Sadio Mane, I remember getting three points from three points in total from Sadio Mane on a triple captaincy. So every season I beat that, I'm relieved. Bench boost was played in game week 29 very successfully, 140 points. That game week I went from 124k to 65k so the bench boost gave me a very decent jump and the free hit was played and gave me 32 for 88 points rank went from 72k to 33k so the chips played a big factor in the latter part of the season so that's kind of a kind of a roundup of a few different things for the campaign i'm going to answer a few questions from twitter now which will bring me to a few other topics First question is from FPL Gerald. How much did you think about the template slash ownership when making your transfers this season? The short answer is almost never. I avoid talk of the template, tweets about the template as much as possible. I've muted the word template on Twitter, so I try not to see it. Ownership percentages, obviously you see them because you're an FPL content creator, but again, I try to avoid them as much as possible. Ownership never comes into my thinking when I'm making a captaincy decision or making a transfer. I'm just kind of got tunnel vision for my own team, my own decisions, the players I think that I like, that I think are going to score points, regardless of whether they got 1% ownership or you know 55% ownership. So yeah, I avoid it as much as possible. And I think it does help me. I think it helps my game to, to do so. And again, most teams were the same this season anyway. So you kind of knew what the template was without going and looking for it. But yeah, I've always been someone who doesn't look at it, tries to avoid it as much as possible. I know there's other managers out there who will use it and maybe try and use it to their, their advantage because if you know what the template looks like, if you know what the percentages are, you can maybe you know take bets against it and stuff like that or you can, you can understand which players are safe to keep etc etc but i don't really go down that approach uh, i just try and have tunnel vision watch the games look at the stats pick the players i like i play a very very simple fpl game in terms of the next question fpl progress how do you stop yourself when you're in free fall from making rash slash bad decisions good question i was in free fall 
you know, for those couple of weeks before the World Cup started, dropped down to about 1 million. How do you, I guess in one sense, I was lucky the World Cup came because it gave me a clean break for five or six weeks and it stopped me from making bad decisions. It allowed me to gather my thoughts and kind of come up with a plan for afterwards. I say come up with a plan. I didn't really come up with a plan. I just kept it simple, like I mentioned earlier. Didn't overthink it, didn't go chasing and just, you know, took the approach of chipping away at the ranks slowly. You know, slow and steady wins the race is how I like to play FPL. How do I stop myself when you're in free fall? I always just try, you've got to just think, you know, especially if you've had a couple of bad game weeks, you try and just remember those points are gone. There's nothing you can do about it. And try, it is hard, but you know, every new game week brings an opportunity for a green arrow. And you've got to just take it one game week at a time. You've got to, you know, if you find yourself having a bad game week and, and you're on the website on Sunday night, you're thinking about making a transfer, You've got to ask yourself, is this really a good idea or am I on tilt here? Am I just making a transfer because I'm frustrated? Best thing to do is just step away for a couple of days. By the time it gets to Wednesday, Thursday, you'll be feeling much better and you'll be much, much less likely to make an impulsive transfer. So again, I think the main the main way to avoid rash and bad decisions is kind of stepping away for a bit. Uh, I, I've probably spent less time on the FPL website this season than ever before. Obviously, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and stuff. Um, you know, recording a podcast and, and you'll maybe reading bits and pieces of FPL content. But sometimes I'll I won't even visit the FPL website until Friday, until I'm making my moves and because I don't like I don't like being on there too much because I feel like if you're on there often, you're more likely to make a transfer that you don't need to make. Yeah. And again, one of my rules is I try it's hard these days with team leaks, which I'll get to, but I try to make my transfers on a Friday night because I do not like being on the website on a Saturday morning. Because again, if you're on the website there's a chance you'll make a transfer you don't need to. If you're not on the website, you're less likely to make you know last-minute rash decisions. You'll get FOMO if you're on Twitter. You'll buy a player you see everyone else buying. But if you can make your moves on a Friday night and avoid the website on a Saturday morning, I find that very useful as well. Again, it keeps the number of point sets down over the course of the season. So yeah, in terms of stopping yourself, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but you've got to just try, try to put the bad games behind you and then just get that first green arrow. And once you get that first green arrow, you'll play a lot more you know, freely and calmly after that. Question from FPL Contrarian. What's the single biggest mistake you think you made last season? I always find these mistake questions difficult because I don't think I, don't think I make too many mistakes in FPL. Every decision I make at the time before a game week starts is a well thought out decision. And it only becomes a mistake with hindsight. You know, you don't know a player's going to go and get six clean sheets in a row. You can't really call it a mistake if you sell them before that. Um, but there's a few things. I'll say maybe slight regrets rather than mistakes. At one point, I bought Saliba. I think it was was a game week three, game week four, I mentioned there. And I didn't keep him very long. And I sold him because I didn't have too much faith in Arsenal defensively. But, you know, they were showing signs. They were keeping the clean sheets at the time. So there was no real need to sell him. So there was a slight regret there. Another one in the Arsenal defence, I sold White, made the switch from White to Gabriel on the Game Week 26 wildcard. I think following that, Gabriel got one point, then I benched him for his 14-pointer, then he got another one-pointer, and then I sold him. And Ben White, like Odegaard, was delivering very well. There was no reason for me to sell him. There was probably slight concern about Tommy Asu, which is why I went for the centre-back instead. But again, should have just stuck with White and Saliba when I owned them, respectively. Elsewhere, I mentioned Odegaard, probably should have kept him. Harry Kane also. And again, probably the biggest, you know, maybe it was a mistake. This one probably was a mistake. On that, Game Week 17, unlimited transfers, 
getting up at you know waking up at two in the morning, getting rid of Botman and Kane for Reese James and Darwin. That was painful, and I will say that was probably a mistake because you know Kane's a known quantity, Darwin isn't. Botman is usually fit, and Reese James usually isn't. So yeah, didn't enjoy that last minute switch. Question from FPL Kenobi. If we had my first 17 weeks and your post-World Cup period, we'd have ended up in the top 1K. What do you think gave you the edge in the second half of the season? Again, we try and think about this question for, for a couple of days, but again, it just comes down to simplicity for me. I often get questions for the podcast towards the end of the season or you know second half of the season. Who's the best differential if you're chasing or who's the best differential if you're behind in your mini-leagues? And I'll always give a couple of names. You know, players like Harvey Barnes, Magic Madison a few times a season, Crystal Palace midfielders, etc. But you'll never really see me going and buying them differentials because I don't really like the differential approach. They're differentials for a reason. They're less likely to score points than the good assets. So even if you are chasing, you are trying to make up rank or mini league position, I always think the best approach is just pick the best players and do it slowly. Because when you're buying a differential, you're probably trying to rocket up the ranks very quickly. And you can just as easily rock it even further down the ranks or your mini league if you take that approach. So very much so what gave me the edge was just being patient, playing safe, playing sensibly, sensible captaincy choices. I think the big one for me was it probably made it easier for me this season to climb because there was so many double game weeks. And I took the approach, a very consistent approach with the double game weeks. I always targeted the double game week players. I didn't really sway from that. Every double game week, the transfers I made were for double game week players. I kind of just avoided the single game weekers almost altogether. The only occasion was that time when I started Trent over a Stupinen. And I luckily got a Stupinen off the bench anyway. But I kind of committed to... Because I think it's tricky... I know this is a very specific season case because there were so many double game weeks, but if you try and, you know, some weeks go for the single game weekers, some game weeks go for the double game weekers, things can maybe get a bit messy then. But I, I remember when the double game week started, I said, I'm going to attack every double game week. Even if the teams are not fantastic, I'm going to take a consistent approach. And over the long term, that should hopefully pay off. And it did, you know, getting triple Brighton for the long term and stuff like that. Obviously, you missed out on a few single game week assets that performed well. But overall, I think, again, I think it was that consistency was key. Because it went, when it came to a double game week, my decisions were already made for me in my mind. I knew I was going to get double game week players. I didn't have to weigh up, oh, do I get a single game week or do I get a double game week? Or I knew exactly what I was doing. You know, I had clarity of thought. So again, that definitely helped get me an edge in the final part of the season. A couple of questions that are related now. The first one's from Chris Griffiths. Did you focus too much on expected minutes and will you change this for next season? That straight away brought a player to mind. And the next question, name that player. Question from New Zealand FPL. Why did you go, sorry, why did we go Isak instead of Wilson? So... The FPL has almost become a game of expected minutes. A lot of us now just always go for the player that we know is going to start, we know is going to play, most likely going to play 90 minutes. And of course, there's some occasions where that can go against us. For example, Isak, a lot of us thought Wilson maybe wouldn't get as many minutes as he did. And we backed Isak to get more minutes. But again, this is definitely hindsight it feels like, because... Yes, Wilson was playing well, but if you play that game week back 
a hundred times, a thousand times. There'll be plenty of game weeks where Isak comes out on top and Wilson does get less minutes and maybe doesn't get the goals that he did and Isak is on the score sheet. So I don't want to weigh too heavily on the Isak versus Wilson thing because I think it's dangerous to do so. But I do want to, I do think I want to bring into next season, I do want to question myself a bit more when I'm making transfers on the expected minutes because I definitely think a lot of us hardcore FPL managers, we probably do read into it too much and we play too safely at times. I feel like, you know, Ali who won FPL, and I always think if you're gonna win FPL, you know, it's 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 all it's all well well and good getting a you know a top hundred K, top ten K, whatever your targets are. But most of us I'm sure wanna win this game at some point. And if you are gonna win it, you're probably not gonna win it by playing very, very safely with expected minutes. And that's the way I play the game. Uh, you know, if I ever do want to win FPL, I probably do need to be a bit more aggressive, a bit more adventurous. And this is a good example. If you've got a, you know, a call between an Isak and a Wilson, and if you're slightly concerned about Wilson's minutes, but if it's only slightly, then is there a huge risk by picking him? Probably not. So definitely something I'm going to think about more next season, uh, the minutes thing, and maybe try not play as safely as I do, because those of you who've been listening or been following me for a couple of seasons, you will you can always predict each week what my transfers are going to be. Very, very sensible, very safe. You know, for example, very rarely own Manchester City midfielders because of the rotation and stuff like that. Uh, and I obviously went Isak over Wilson. I was, when I think back to the Isak versus Wilson one as well, I decided about four weeks before that, that I was going to get Isak. I knew I was going to do Watkins to Isak. In the meantime, in those, you know, three, four weeks, Wilson started firing. And maybe I that's where my mistake might have been not kind of adjusting my plan when Wilson was doing well I was very gung-ho I like to stick to a plan but I probably needed to adjust it because I watched a couple of games you know Isak was playing wide Wilson's through the middle Wilson was taking penalties so I think that's when the mistake was rather than the the expected minutes part but but good question and I definitely want to you know at least give it some more thought next season when I'm making transfers and maybe not be as cautious when it comes to minutes question from jordan mcgee will you adjust your strategy to account for the game's increasing competitiveness i don't think so you know each season we've got more more managers we've got more content creators we've got more managers copying content creators we've got more bots we've got ai we've got all sorts of stuff going on in this wonderful game that we play but my style of play it's not going to change you know i've been playing this game quite successfully now for a long time. I think that's that is my ninth top fifty K in the last ten seasons. So I've had one bad season in the last ten. So there's no reason for me, you know, if you're a Premier League team and you you know you you have you play well for nine out of ten seasons, you're not gonna change your your formation, your tactics too much the following campaign. So I'm very much gonna stick to what I'm doing, the tried and trusted approach, the patient strategy, the sensible strategy don't think outside the box too often so even though it is a much harder game to play now rather than change my style of play I think it's more important to change the goalposts move the goalposts if you if you used to try and get a top 10k give yourself a bit of leeway now aim for a top 50k now I think even top top 100k nowadays out of 11 million you know we could have 13 million teams next year top 100k is a very very good season so don't put too much pressure on yourself to do well and you know Maybe focus on those mini leagues more so and whatever the rank is. Again, I always think when you're on your deathbed, when you're 99 years old, when your relatives are coming in to say their goodbyes, they're not going to ask you what your rank was in 2022, 2023. 
Um, I always joke. Some people might ask me if I if I end up doing this FPL stuff for forever. That probably will be some of the the chat when I'm 99 years old. But overall, you know, we we. I myself and I'm sure many of you listen as well we obsess over our rank we obsess over our many leagues but listen there's a lot more important things in life so don't stress over it too much questions two more questions now that are related question from Eric Ness Onstad do you think big at the back will be something we consider again come game week one or has the current season shown that it is not the correct strategy Andrew T's question was with the majority of the highest scoring defenders this season being 5 million and below is there any point in premium defenders next season Trent Trent excluded so I think my kind of feeling on defenders at the moment in the Premier League landscape is and we all a lot of us said this towards the start of last season or at least in the early parts of the season the you know the bottom 10 teams in the Premier League these days are much better than they were five years ago they're all capable of scoring goals you know teams like Bournemouth and Fulham they all have good attacking players which diminishes the appeal of expensive defenders in FPL a lot of us started with a premium defence game week one last season you know I had Trent I had Robertson Cancelo I think I had Reese James as well but they're all very you know attacking defenders you're not really going after the clean sheets obviously you need the clean sheets for them to be good value but I think again it's a long way away but I can see myself when I pick my game one team for next season I don't think there'll be as much money spent in defence as there was at the start of last season but again that doesn't mean Every season is different. Yes, if you look at the overall points for defenders this season, there was no Liverpool or City defenders near the top, which is very, very rare. And it's quite likely that that will revert next season and we'll see the Liverpool and Man City guys performing well again. So you've got to be open to going big at the back if the season shapes up that way. So maybe you start off a bit lighter in defence, maybe Trent and a couple of 4.5s or you know, maybe a 1.5 or a 5.5. But then you know if Liverpool and City do start churning out the clean sheets... You're going to go back to big at the back. So the main takeaway here is you've got to be open-minded in the FPL. You can't go into a season and say, I'm going to have a cheap defence all season because you've got to be flexible. And if the big defenders are performing, you've got to go and buy them. The next question is from FPL Tom. Tom said, I had Trent, Robertson and Salah at the start of the season and it backfired drastically. I feel like I should have learned from this experience. However, I am seriously contemplating starting next season with Trent and Salah in my team. Am I being stupid? Absolutely not stupid. Like I said, it's a fresh season. It's a fresh slate. Yes, Trent and Salah didn't do fantastically towards the start of last season. Well, Salah did okay. You know, first five game weeks, I was looking at the points yesterday. Trent did very, very little. But... You know, what are you going to weigh more heavily, the start of last season or the end of last season? You know, Trent and Salah were on it. Liverpool were on it. So their chances are they might start the season well, much better than they did last season. So Trent and Salah, I think, will be in a lot of Game Week 1 teams. And depending on the fixtures, are probably very likely to be in my team for the start of the season. But certainly, I am scarred by Trent and Robbo. Definitely won't have Trent and Robertson as a double-up for the start of the season. Unless they start with, you know, three of the promoted teams in the first four games or something like that. So yeah, don't... Again, I say I'm definitely not going to do Trent and Robertson game week one. I shouldn't really do that because I'm saying it's a fresh slate. If I think Trent and Robertson are good picks in their own right for game week one, I should be open to doing so. So I need to shake that off. Shake off all, all those bad experiences for a new season and be open to going back to those players. Question from FPL Benchwarmers. What do you think should be done about the leaks? Should we change the deadline? 
Yeah, I won't spend too much on too long on this because it's been you know debated to death over the last couple of weeks, couple of months. Quite simply, I think they should just move the deadline to the first kickoff. So, if there's a Friday night game, make the deadline uh, eight o'clock or or you know five minutes before the first kickoff, seven fifty-five. If it's a Saturday deadline, make the deadline half past twelve at the first kickoff. That way, we all get the first set of team sheets. We don't have to you know, spend loads of time looking at Twitter accounts, looking for leaks and all that kind of stuff. So there's never going to be a perfect solution, but I think that's probably the best one. And I, I, I kind of like the idea of having the first team sheets, especially if there's a Friday night game, because I think it brings a new dimension to the game. If you're going to sit down and watch a game on a Friday night, if you don't have any players, but then you get the team sheets, you, know, you may be tempted to get one. Uh, you know, you might be torn between, do I roll a transfer? Do I bring in a Friday night player? And the other one is, if you're thinking about Captain Haaland, for example on a Saturday but you've got some doubt that he's going to play if you get the Friday night game let's say Manchester United playing a Friday night if you see if you get the team news you know Rashford starting do you captain Rashford for the security of a start or do you take the punt on Haaland the day after so I do like the idea of getting the first set of team sheets just two more questions to go the first one's from Sean Henderson if you had any say on changes at FPL Towers what changes would you make and why covered a few of these in a Fantasy Football Scout article a couple of weeks ago. Again, mentioned the deadline. I'd like to see some tweaks for the captaincy, possibly. A new chip would be would be great. I would like if they took away the bench boost because that chip holds you hostage, makes you buy players for your bench rather than for your starting eleven. The main change I would like to see is is with player prices. I would like to see them make the the big boys more expensive. Just to give us, you know, harder decisions to make. I don't think you should be able to pick all the best players in your team, but I don't think that will change because, you know, they they want the casual managers to be able to pick your Haaland's, your Salas, your De Bruyne's if they want to. So that's probably not going to happen. But I think it would make it a much better game if we were forced to forced to pick players from, you know, the bottom half of the table more often. That's where we find our Michus from seasons gone by and players like that. Question from Bass Belfi. Have you ever considered stopping playing? It seems to me that many managers who get too involved at some point need a break. Have you been at that point and how did you or do you deal with it? Great question, Bass. Every single season I think about quitting FPL and I'm sure I'm not alone there. It's such... A big investment every year you know it's nine or ten months it's a couple of hours a week at least for a lot of people it's a lot more than that it's probably an unhealthy habit for a lot of us but my problem is i'm in too deep now it pays my bills it pays my mortgage 100 percent of my income comes from fpl content creation so as much as i would like to quit i've often been tempted to just not play and still deliver fpl content but i'm not sure how well that will go down you can't really I don't think it would sit well with people if you're giving out FPL advice on a podcast, on a Patreon page, but not putting your money where your mouth is and actually playing the game yourself. Although I still think the advice would be good. Maybe the advice would be even better because I wouldn't be biased uh, with you know the players that are currently in my team and stuff like that. But again, not going to do that. And yes, I class myself as an FPL addict, but I think I could be addicted to a lot worse things in life. Uh, at least that's what I keep. That's what the FPL addict inside me keeps telling myself to keep me playing. Uh, and at, at the end of the day, I just love this game too much to step away. You know, it's um, yes, it's stressful at times, and um, you get red arrows and stuff like that. But I've I've kind of learned over the years that it is just a game, and I think I've got a good relationship with FPL now. Maybe I didn't have a good relationship with it five, six, seven years ago when I took it too seriously. But I love the game. It's a great game. It's a great escape from all other things in life. 
it gives me much more enjoyment of the Premier League. I love sitting down on a Monday night and watching a game from two teams in the relegation zone because you've got something riding on it or you're doing a bit of scouting for future transfers. So for me, I don't think it's an option to quit because, like I said, it's my job and I do love the game. That's where my initial... You know, love for it came from as I, you know, I've been playing it since day one. I think two thousand and two, two thousand and three was when FPL started. I was twelve years old, so I've been I've been playing it for as long as anyone, and I don't really see myself stopping. Um, and it's you know I'm very very lucky to to call FPL my job, and I kind of like the idea of having a a lifelong career in FPL in terms of of an income. Um, so yeah, long may it continue, and and a big thank you to my especially my. Uh, Patreon subscribers for making that possible and the Fancy Football Scout as well who took over the podcast recently so for me I won't be quitting but I think my advice is if you are if you think FPL has a major negative impact on your life on your moods on your relationships don't ignore that and even one season out I've spoken to a lot of people who you know were really struggling with FPL um, we had a chat and we, you know, my suggestion was, you know, you do need to take a break from this. And even just taking one season off, when they came back, those subsequent seasons, you know, the first one, two, three seasons after a year out, they played a lot differently. They played with a lot more freedom and it really didn't bother them as much. So if you are, I'm sure a lot of you listening, you know, it probably has crossed your mind already. Do I take a season off? Uh, don't Again, don't ignore those thoughts. If you think it's the right thing to do for you, for your home life, all that kind of stuff. Because this is a game that too many people take too seriously. Um, so again, be make sure you recognise if you're taking it too seriously and either take the steps you need to enjoy it more or to be less engaged, maybe listen to less podcasts, read less stuff, only log in on a Friday, stuff like that. Or be open to taking a year out from the game because it will do you the world of good that is it for the questions that is it for the podcast there's plenty of pre-season podcasts to come like i said if you're on spotify or itunes make sure you hit follow so you get the notifications for those podcasts it won't be long it won't be long until those podcasts are out as soon as we have player prices there will be a podcast and there'll be quite a few podcasts before the season starts to get you ready for your best ever fpl season also check out patreon.com forward slash fpl general where you'll get lots of extra content for the new season as well and finally i hope to see some listeners at fantasy football fest in london on august 11th so it's friday august 11th it's the first day of the season i'll be there there's a live fpl black box there's comedy it's, I think there's over 150 tickets sold already. If you're listening to this today, which is Friday, June the 9th, I think early bird tickets, today's the last day you can get them. So if you are listening today, go snap one up. And I hope to see some of you there. It's set to be a great day of FPL chat, banter, and probably frustration during the Friday night fixture. Talk to you all soon, folks. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back very soon with pre-season content. Sports Social Podcast Network.